the following tale has some language and descriptions that may offend some listeners. While it's true that Lovecraft wrote some regrettably racist and isolationist views, we have chosen not to change his language and his writing. And while we recognise his flaws as a human being, we also recognise and enjoy his imagination and storytelling. We at The Darkest Page do not agree with Lovecraft's racist views or his isolationist stance. Please enjoy the horror at Red Hook. This is the Darkest Page Podcast. Five. Then came the June wedding and the great sensation. Flatbush was gay for the hour about high noon, and penanted motors thronged the streets near the old Dutch church, where an awning stretched from door to highway. No local event ever surpassed the Soydem Gerritsen nuptials in tone and scale, and the party which escorted bride and groom to the Cunard Pier was, if not exactly the smallest, at least a solid page from the social register. At five o'clock adieu were waved, and the ponderous liner edged away from the long pier, slowly turning its nose seaward, discarding its tug, and headed for the widening water spaces that led to old world wonders. By night, the outer harbour was cleared, and late passengers watched the stars twinkling above an unpolluted ocean. Whether the tramp steamer or the scream was first to gain attention, no one can say. Probably they were simultaneous but it is of no use to calculate. The scream came from the Soydem stateroom, and the sailor who broke down the door could perhaps have told frightful things if he had not forthwith gone completely mad. As it is, he shrieked more loudly than the first victims, and thereafter ran simpering about the vessel till caught and put in irons. The ship's doctor who entered the stateroom and turned on the lights a moment later did not go mad, but told nobody what he saw till afterward, when he corresponded with Malone, in Chapache. It was murder, strangulation, but one need not say that the claw mark on Mrs. Soydem's throat could not have come from her husband, or any other human hand, or that upon the white wall there flicked for an instant in hateful red, a legend, which, later copied from memory, seems to have been nothing less than the fearsome Chalde letters of the word Lilith. One need not mention these things because they vanished so quickly. As for Soydem, one could at least bar others from the room until one knew what to think oneself. The doctor had distinctly assured Malone that he did not see it. The open porthole, just before he turned on the lights, was clouded for a second with a certain phosphorescence, and for a moment there seemed to echo in the night outside the suggestion of a faint and hellish tittering but no real outline met the eye. As proof, 
The doctor points to his continued sanity. Then the tramp steamer claimed all attention. A boat pulled off, and a horde of swart, insolent ruffians in officer's dress swarmed aboard and temporarily halted Kunada. They wanted Soidem or his body. They had known of his trip, and for certain reasons were sure he would die. The captain's deck was almost a pandemonium, for at the instant, between the doctor's report from the stateroom and the demands of the men from the tramp, not even the wisest and gravest seaman could think what to do. Suddenly, the leader of the visiting mariners, an Arab with a hateful negroid mouth, pulled forth a dirty, crumpled paper and handed it to the captain. It was signed by Robert Soydem and bore the following odd message. In case of sudden or unexplained accident or death on my part, please deliver me or my body unquestioningly into the hands of the bearer and his associates. Everything, for me and perhaps for you, depends on absolute compliance. Explanations can come later. Do not fail me now, Robert Soydem. Captain and Doctor looked at each other, and the latter whispered something to the former. Finally, they nodded rather helplessly and led the way to the Soydem stateroom. The Doctor directed the Captain's glance away as he unlocked the door and admitted the strange seaman. Nor did he breathe easily till they filed out with their burden after an unaccountably long period of preparation. It was wrapped in bedding from the berths and the doctor was glad that the outlines were not very revealing. Somehow the men got the thing over the side and away to their tramp steamer without uncovering it. The Kunada started again, and the doctor and a ship's undertaker sought out the Soydem stateroom to perform what last services they could. Once more the physician was forced to reticence and even to mendacity, for a hellish thing had happened. When the undertaker asked him why he had drained off all of Mrs. Soydem's blood, he neglected to affirm that he had not done so, nor did he point to the vacant bottle spaces on the rack, or to the odour in the sink which showed the hasty disposition of the bottle's original contents. The pockets of those men, if men they were, had bulged damnably when they left the ship. Two hours later, and the world knew by radio all that it ought to know about the horrible affair. Six. That same June evening, without having heard a word from the sea, Malone was desperately busy among the alleys of Red Hook. A sudden stir seemed to permeate the place, and as if appraised by a grapevine telegraph of something singular, the denizens clustered expectantly around the dance hall church and the houses in Parker Place. Three children had just disappeared, blue-eyed Norwegians from the streets towards Gowanus and there were rumours of a mob forming among the sturdy vikings of that section. Malone had for weeks been urging his colleagues to attempt a general clean-up, and at last, moved by conditions more obvious to their common sense than the conjectures of a Dublin dreamer, they had agreed upon a final stroke. The unrest and menace of this evening had been the deciding factor, and just about midnight a raiding party recruited from three stations descended upon Parker Place and its environs. Doors were battered in, stragglers arrested, 
and candle-lighted rooms forced to disgorge unbelievable throngs of mixed foreigners in figured robes, mitres and other inexplicable devices. Much was lost in the melee, for objects were thrown hastily down unexpected shafts and betraying odours deadened by the sudden kindling of pungent incense. But spattered blood was everywhere, and Malone shuddered whenever he saw a brazier or altar from which the smoke was still rising. He wanted to be in several places at once, and decided on Soydem's basement flat only after a messenger had reported the complete emptiness of the dilapidated dance hall church. The flat, he thought, must hold some clue to a cult of which the occult scholar had so obviously become the centre and leader, and it was with real expectancy that he ransacked the musty rooms, noted their vaguely charnel odour, and examined the curious books, instruments, gold ingots and glass-stoppered bottles scattered carelessly here and there. Once, a lean, black-and-white cat edged between his feet and tripped him overturning at the same time a beaker half full of a red liquid. The shock was severe, and to this day Malone is not certain of what he saw, but in dreams he still pictures that cat as it scuttled away with certain monstrous alterations and peculiarities. Then came the locked cellar door, and the search for something to break it down. A heavy stool stood near, and its tough seat was more than enough for the antique panels. A crack formed and enlarged, and the whole door gave way. But from the other side, hence poured a howling tumult of ice-cold wind, with all the stenches of the bottomless pit, and whence reached a sucking force not of earth or heaven, which, coiling sentiently about the paralysed detective, dragged him through the aperture and down unmeasured spaces, filled with whispers and wails and gusts of mocking laughter. Of course, it was a dream. All the specialists have told him so, and he has nothing to prove the contrary. Indeed, he would rather have it thus, for then the sight of old brick slums and dark foreign faces would not eat so deeply into his soul. But at the time it was all horribly real, and nothing could ever efface the memory of those knighted crypts, those titan arcades, and those half-formed shapes of hell that strode gigantically in silence holding half-eaten things whose still-surviving portions screamed for mercy or laughed with madness. Odours of incense and corruption joined in sickening concert, and the black air was alive with the cloudy, semi-visible bulk of shapeless, elemental things with eyes. Somewhere, dark, sticky water was lapping at onyx piers, and once the shivery tinkle of raucous little bells pealed out to greet the insane titter of a naked, phosphorescent thing which swam into sight, scrambled ashore, and climbed up to squat leeringly on a carved golden pedestal in the background. Avenues of limitless night seemed to radiate in every direction, till one might fancy that here lay the root of a contagion destined to sicken and swallow cities, and engulf nations in the fetter of hybrid pestilence. Here, cosmic sin had entered, and feasted, by unhallowed rites had commenced the grinning march of death that was to rot us all to fungus abnormalities too hideous for the grave's holding. Satan here held his Babylonish court, and in the blood of stainless childhood, the leprous limbs of phosphorescent Lilith were larved. Incubi and Succubi howled praise to Hecate, 
and headless moon calves bleated to the magna mater. Goats leaped to the sound of thin, accursed flutes, and agapans chased endlessly after misshapen fawns over rocks twisted like swollen toads. Moloch and Astaroth were not absent, for in this quintessence of all damnation the bounds of consciousness were let down, and man's fancy lay open to vistas of every realm of horror, and every forbidden dimension that evil had power to mould. The world and nature were helpless against such assaults from unsealed wells of night, nor could any sign or prayer check the Walpurgis riot of horror, which had come when a sage with the hateful key had stumbled on a hoard with the locked and brimming coffer of transmitted demon lore. Suddenly, a ray of physical light shot through these phantasms, and Malone heard the sound of oars amid the blasphemies of things that should be dead. A boat with a lantern in its prow darted into sight, made fast to an iron ring in the slimy stone pier, and vomited forth several dark men bearing a long burden swathed in bedding. They took it to the naked phosphorescent thing on the carved golden pedestal, and the thing tittered and pawed at the bedding. Then they unswathed it, and propped upright before the pedestal the gangrenous corpse of a corpulent old man with stubbly beard and unkempt white hair. The phosphorescent thing tittered again, and the men produced bottles from their pockets, and anointed its feet with red, whilst they afterwards gave the bottles to the thing to drink from. All at once, from an arcaded avenue leading endlessly away, there came the demoniac rattle and wheeze of a blasphemous organ, choking and rumbling out the mockeries of hell in a cracked, sardonic bass. In an instant every moving entity was electrified, and forming at once into a ceremonial procession. The nightmare horde slithered away in quest of the sound. Goat, Satyr, Agipan, Incubus, Succuba, and Lima, twisted toads and shapeless elemental, dog-faced howler, and silent strutter in darkness, all led by the abominable naked phosphorescent thing that had squatted on the carved golden throne, and that now strode insolently bearing in its arms the glassy-eyed corpse of the corpulent old man. The strange dark men danced in the rear, and the whole column skipped and leaped with Dionysic fury. Malone staggered after them a few steps, delirious and hazy, and doubtful of his place in this or in any world. Then he turned, faltered and sank down on the cold damp stone, gasping and shivering as the demon organ croaked on, and the howling and drumming and tinkling of the mad procession grew fainter and fainter. Vaguely he was conscious of chanted horrors and shocking croakings afar off. Now and then a wail or whine of ceremonial devotion would float to him through the black arcade, whilst eventually there rose the dreadful Greek incantation, whose text he had read above the pulpit of that dance hall church. O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoiced in the baying of dogs, here a hideous howl burst forth, and spilt blood, here nameless sounds vied with morbid shriekings, who wanderest in the midst of shades amongst the tombs, here a whistling sigh occurred, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals, short, sharp cries from myriad throats. Gogo, repeated as a response. Momo, repeated with ecstasy. 
thousand-faced moon, sighs and flute notes, look favorably on our sacrifices. As the chant closed, a general shout went up, and hissing sounds nearly drowned the croaking of the cracked bass organ. Then a gasp as from many throats, and a babble of barked and bleated words. Lilith, great Lilith, behold the bridegroom. More cries, a clamour of rioting, and the sharp, clicking footfalls of a running figure. The footfalls approached, and Malone raised himself to his elbow to look. The luminosity of the crypt, lately diminished, had now slightly increased, and in that devil light there appeared the fleeing form of that which should not flee or feel or breathe, the glassy-eyed, gangrenous corpse of the corpulent old man, now needing no support, but animated by some infernal sorcery of the rite just closed. After it raced the naked, tittering phosphorescent thing that belonged on the carven pedestal, and still further behind panted the dark men, and all the dread crew of sentient loathsomeness. The corpse was gaining on its pursuers, and seemed bent on a definite object, straining with every rotting muscle forward the carved golden pedestal, whose necromantic importance was evidently so great. Another moment and it had reached its goal, whilst the trailing thing laboured on with more frantic speed, but they were too late for in one final spurt of strength which ripped tendon from tendon and sent its noisome bulk floundering to the floor in a state of jellyish dissolution, the staring corpse which had been Robert Soydum achieved its object and its triumph. The push had been tremendous, but the force had held out, and as the pusher collapsed to a muddy blotch of corruption, the pedestal he had pushed tottered, tipped, and finally careened from its onyx base into the thick waters below sending up a parting gleam of carven gold as it sank heavily to undreamable gulfs of lower Tartarus. In that instant, too, the whole scene of horror faded to nothingness before Malone's eyes, and he fainted amidst a thunderous crash which seemed to blot out all the evil universe. Seven. Malone's dream, experienced in full before he knew of Soydum's death and transfer at sea, was curiously supplemented by some odd realities of the case, though it is no reason why anyone should believe it. The three old houses in Park Place, doubtless long rotted with decay in the most insidious form, collapsed without visible cause, while half of the raiders and most of the prisoners were inside, and of both the greater number were instantly killed. Only in the basements and cellars was there much saving of life, and Malone was lucky to have been deep below the house of Robert Soydum, for he really was there, as no one is disposed to deny. They found him unconscious by the edge of a night-black pool, with a grotesquely horrible jumble of decay and bone, identifiable through dental work as the body of Soydum, a few feet away. The case was plain, for it was hither that the smuggler's underground canal led, and the men who took Soydem from the ship had brought him home. They themselves were never found, or at least never identified, and the ship's doctor is not yet satisfied with the simple certitudes of the police. 
Sidon was evidently a leader in extensive man-smuggling operations, for the canal to his house was but one of several subterranean channels and tunnels in the neighbourhood. There was a tunnel from his house to a crypt beneath the dance hall church, a crypt accessible from the church only through a narrow secret passage in the north wall, and in whose chambers some singular and terrible things were discovered. The croaking organ was there, as well as a vast arched chapel with wooden benches and a strangely figured altar. The walls were lined with small cells in seventeen of which, hideous to relate, solitary prisoners in a state of complete idiocy were found chained, including four mothers with infants of disturbingly strange appearance. These infants died soon after exposure to the light, a circumstance which the doctors thought rather merciful. Nobody but Malone, among those who inspected them, remembered the sombre question of old Del Rio, and Sintun Quam de Monus Incubi et Succube et Anextali Congressu Proles Nasi Quate. Before the canals were filled up, they were thoroughly dredged and yielded forth a sensational array of sword and split bones of all sizes. The kidnapping epidemic very clearly had been traced home though only two of the surviving prisoners could by any legal thread be connected with it. These men are now in prison, since they failed of conviction as accessories in the actual murders. The carved golden pedestal or throne so often mentioned by Malone as of primary occult importance was never brought to light, though at one place under the Sodom house the canal was observed to sink into a well too deep for dredging. It was choked up at the mouth and cemented over when the cellars of the new houses were made. But Malone often speculates on what lies beneath. The police, satisfied that they had shattered a dangerous gang of maniacs and man-smugglers, turned over to the federal authorities the unconvicted Kurds, who before their deportation were conclusively found to belong to the Yezidi clan of devil worshippers. The tramp ship and its crew remain an elusive mystery though cynical detectives are once more ready to combat its smuggling and rumouring ventures. Malone thinks these detectives show a sadly limited perspective in their lack of wonder at the myriad unexplainable details and the suggestive obscurity of the whole case, though he is just as critical of the newspapers, which saw only a morbid sensation and gloated over a minor sadist cult which they might have proclaimed a horror from the universe's very heart but he is content to rest silent in Chapuche, calming his nervous system, and praying that time may gradually transfer his terrible experience from the realm of present reality to that of picturesque and semi-mythical remoteness. Robert Soydum sleeps beside his bride in Greenwood Cemetery. No funeral was held over the strangely released bones, and relatives are grateful for the swift oblivion which overtook the case as a whole. The scholar's connection with the Red Hook horrors, indeed, was never emblazoned by legal proof, since his death forestalled the inquiry he would otherwise have faced. His own end is not much mentioned, and the Suidams hope that posterity may recall him only as a gentle recluse who dabbled in harmless magic and folklore. As for Red Hook, it is always the same. Suidam came and went, the terror gathered and faded, but the evil spirit of darkness and squalor broods on amongst the mongrels in the old brick houses, and prowling bands still parade on unknown errands past windows where lights 
and twisted faces unaccountably appear and disappear. Age-old horror is a hydra with a thousand heads, and the cults of darkness are rooted in blasphemies deeper than the well of Democritus. The soul of the beast is omnipresent and triumphant, and Red Hook's legions of blear-eyed, pockmarked youth still chant and curse and howl as they file from abyss to abyss. None knows whence or whither, pushed on by blind laws or biology, which they may never understand. As of old, more people enter Red Hook than leave it on the landward side, and there are already rumours of new canals running underground to certain centres of traffic in liquor and less mentionable things. The dance hall church is now mostly a dance hall, and queer faces have appeared at night at the windows. Lately, a policeman expressed the belief that the filled-up crypt has been dug out again, and for no simply explainable purpose. Who are we to combat poisons older than history and mankind? Apes danced in Asia to these horrors, and the cancer lurks secure and spreading where furtiveness hides in rows of decaying brick. Malone does not shudder without cause, for only the other day an officer overheard a swarthy squinting hag teaching a small child some whispering patois in the shadow of an areaway. He listened, and thought it very strange when he heard her repeat over and over again. O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs and spilt blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades amongst the tombs, who longest for the blood and bringest terror to mortals, Giorgio Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favourably on our sacrifices. This has been The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft. This episode was made with the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page podcast, Alex Smith and Tonks. To see how you can support the Darkest Page, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant dreams.